Last week, the federal government released their review of the migration system. The review has revealed a broken system in dire need of reform. To quote the report, Australia now has a migration program that fails to attract the most highly skilled migrants and fails to enable business to effectively access workers. Here to discuss the government report and their policy recommendations are Brendan Coates, Economic Policy Program Director, and Tyler Reisenbach, Associate. Brendan, from the look at the report, the system is not fit for purpose, but what purpose is that? What should be the goal of our migration system in Australia? What the review, the Parkins review, acknowledged is we have that the system hasn't had a real clear objective for a long time, and that's led it to drift. And so we've seen lots of ad hoc changes that have accumulated and allowed us, led us to have a system which isn't really achieving any plausible objective for the migration program. So, you know, what the, what the government has done, what the review recommended and the government has largely adopted is a system that tries to get focus more on the long term, try to focus more on getting the skills that we need for the long term to maximise the well-being of the Australian community from the migration program, particularly skilled migration, and a bit less of a focus on temporary migration and short-term skill shortages. So they've kind of outlined very briefly five objectives. One is to build Australia's prosperity by improving productivity, you know, meeting labour force needs and supporting exports, um, making sure that you have a fair labour market, so that's about making sure we don't have exploitation, building a community of Australians, so that's acknowledging that migrants come to Australia and they contribute and engage in the community far beyond sort of just the economic realm. Uh, protecting Australia's interests in the world and providing a fast, efficient and fair system. And the last of these is actually really important for achieving those other objectives because we won't be able to attract those skilled migrants we really need uh, if we're not, if the system isn't simple to use for employers, simple to use for prospective migrants. You know, those that are highly skilled will choose to go elsewhere because, frankly, they've got other options and we're in a race for talent. And if we want to get those highly skilled people to Australia, we need to make it as easy as possible. Tyler, as a result of the report, the government has announced some immediate changes to the temporary skilled migration income threshold, which if you, I mean, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, might sound familiar. We have discussed it previously, and you both previously recommended what's called a Goldilocks threshold of $70,000, which has actually just been picked up by government. Why did you choose this amount? And could you go through the changes for me, please? I might start with explaining for those that haven't been following along uh, avidly what the TISMIT actually is. So the TISMIT is the threshold by which skilled migrants have to earn above that threshold to come to Australia under a skilled program. So that applies both for temporary skilled uh, migration as well as permanent skilled migration. And the reason we picked the TISMIT of 70,000 is because it's not too high and it's not too low. So if you set the TISMIT too high, you stop young, talented, skilled professionals who are starting out their career from coming to Australia and contributing. But if you set it too low, the program no longer becomes about skills and it becomes a de facto low-skilled work visa. So where it was previously, it was at 53,900, which is far too low. About 90% of Australians earn more than that. I think no one would say that that's a skilled program. Um, 70,000 works really well because it's about the average earnings of someone who's 25 to 35. So that puts it well in kind of the level of skilled people, 
while also kind of giving young people an opportunity to come to Australia. Yeah, it's also just worth being really clear that we're talking about sponsored migration here. So this is obviously where employers are sponsoring people to come to Australia, which is one part of the skill migration program. You know, there are other parts as well, like points-tested visas, through which people come to Australia, um, and particularly as international students. So that tismet, that wage threshold, and it's been funny watching journalists over the course of the last six months actually learn a lot about a migration program because there's been so much more coverage. But it is it is really only focused on on sponsored visas. There's no wage threshold for people who are coming through other pathways for skilled migration. Yeah, that's really helpful to clarify that because it's very easy to become confused when it comes to the migration program because there are so many different types of visas. Tyler, one of the first things I thought when I was reading these recommendations and the immediate changes to the $70,000 threshold, what happens to workers who are suddenly ineligible for TISMET? Will there be further worker shortages in certain industries? It's a tough one because government has announced that the TISMET will now rise to 70000 as of 1 July, which we kind of thought was probably a bit too quick. We've recommended previously to have a staged phase-in period. That being said, it has been stagnating for a very long time, so we understand governments like want to work quickly. There are questions about how that will work in terms of transitioning. I can imagine a lot of people will just try and get in before 1 July to reapply for their visa if they are going to fall below that tismet. That being said, I mean, that's some industries will be affected. I mean, most notably will be HOSPO. Um, they kind of the majority of people who are earning below 70,000 work in hospitality. Uh, so we might see some labor market tightening in that area. But that being said, I, a lot of the worker shortages in hospitality were caused by the lack of students. And, you know, there's been heaps of coverage recently talking about how student numbers have become roaring back. I think between those two countervailing things, that that will work. I think it's also really important to remember that this is about skilled migration. If we are facing worker shortages in those areas, it's not necessarily going to be skilled workers, which means if employers want to raise wages and hire locals, that should be easy enough to do. There shouldn't be, you know, very many training barriers or occupational requirements to, to fill those gaps. Brendan, we've previously recommended also getting rid of restrictions on which jobs are eligible for temporary sponsorship. And the government's aiming to improve these systems. But what I'm thinking, won't this result in the same problem of outdated lists that don't keep up with the new jobs? Yeah, so one thing that the government hasn't adopted is they haven't adopted our recommendation to abolish the skills um, occupation list completely and instead move to a world where we just rely upon wages as a signal of whether someone is skilled when we're thinking about sponsorship, um, employer sponsorship, whether for the temporary program or for the permanent program, as we've discussed previously. So what they're instead going to do is they're going to have these three tiers. They're going to have a tier of high-skilled migrants through a specialised pathway where they where there may not be something like an occupation list. Uh, that's a big step forward, but it's not clear about what wage threshold that would cut in at and whether there'd be other restrictions, like it might be restricted to like IT workers to support, you know, if Atlassian wants to get more staff in Sydney. Then there's going to be this middle cohort of, um, of temporary sponsored workers where something like occupation lists is still going to, to be put in place. And the government's going to use Jobs and Skills Australia to try to work out um, what should be um, the occupations that are on that list or if occupations are going to be replaced with something else, um, what that alternative system is going to be. Uh, and the challenge there is that, you know, 
the government and, and the review are very clear that it's really hard to determine what jobs are in shortage or what skills are needed because those ANSCO occupation lists are like look, driving along looking in the rearview mirror. You're looking at what the labour force looked like a decade ago because that's how long it takes to update these things because you need very detailed data. And it just means that you don't have, you know, a lot of the jobs like data scientists wasn't on these lists for a long time. And the sort of jobs in emerging industries, which are going to be so critical to Australia's prosperity going forward, whether it be IT startups or in the, the transition to a clean energy economy, you know, those jobs may not actually exist in that framework, which makes it really hard to recruit people. And it's not clear exactly how just giving it to Jobs and Skills Australia may take some of the politics out of it, may get rid of the sort of stakeholder lobbying that we think is sitting behind of the construction of those occupation lists today that determine who's eligible for sponsorship. Um, but, you know, Jobs and Skills Australia can't invent data that doesn't exist. Like if they don't have the information they need, very granular data on wages, vacancies, you know, this kind of information, it's going to be really hard to work out what should be on that list and what should there's also this question about what it's going to do to sort of low skilled jobs that are off the list there's sort of the fall below that seventy thousand dollar threshold it's worth remembering that a lot of the the sort of where we think there are big shortages in the economy whether it be childcare, aged care you know the person that gets my granddad in out of bed every morning you know those those jobs are not eligible for temporary sponsorship today you know they earn far below the existing wage threshold of fifty four thousand dollars a year and they also are not even on those occupation lists right now. So that's not where we expect to see a lot of impact because, you know, it's worth remembering there are only something like, and Tyler may correct me, 100,000 temporary sponsored workers in Australia today, you know, in a workforce of, you know, more, many more than 10 million. That's a pretty small number of workers. And if we're only knocking out a third of those people who earn less than 70,000 today, the impact on the labour market actually would be fairly small. Just a follow-up there, Brendan, I mean, is that because the system is too hard to navigate? If they make the system easier, do you think that those migration numbers would increase? They'd increase somewhat, um, certainly, but it's just a relatively small part of our migration program because there are costs, as you say, as you sort of outlined, there's sort of, there are impediments to sponsoring workers. And if it made it easier, potentially you would get more. And so our our hope would be if you raise the wage threshold but make it easier, we'd maybe get the same number of sponsored workers we get today, but they're just higher skilled on average. It's just a small part of our program compared to the fact that we have a large permanent program. We have a large family reunion program. We have many people here as students. Uh, we have many people here as working holidaymakers. And those pathways, there are just genuinely more people flowing through those pathways because people come to Australia for a whole bunch of different reasons. And temporary sponsorship is actually just a small part of where migrants come from when they choose to make Australia home. So, I mean, I guess on the question of low-skilled workers and, and aged care workers in particular, the government has committed to a new tripartite forum to try and kind of outline a way forward for areas of critical shortages in low-skilled work. The idea being is that you know, there, there will be a need where wages can't adjust to attract workers to increase our temporary migration in the space. I think Grattan's previously spoken about that there are significant risks. People that are lower skilled are more likely to be exploited. Um, we risk entrenching a guest worker society if we're only, you know, if we're bringing people here with no prospect of permanent residency at the end of it. And so it'll be really interesting to see what government does in this space. I think we would kind of echo our previous cautions that you should really only be doing this in cases where wages can't adjust, there is no market, 
for a market mechanism to bring and attract more people into this area. And so I think something like aged care, so government's already, they've announced this morning in the budget, we're recording this on a Thursday, that they've um, budgeted for like a 15, that they've committed to the increase, the 15% increase for aged care workers, and it will cost something insane, like $11 billion. In that case, there might be a need for temporary migration to come in and help fill some of those aged care worker gaps. Because of the government funding, wages can't adjust as they should to attract more people into the work, um, into the workforce. One thing that we'd caution is like, you shouldn't be opening this to agriculture. You shouldn't be opening this to like hospitality. In that case, we'd really want to see wages increase if people can't seem to find workers. Yeah, in the long term, the only way we're going to solve that aged care workforce issues, childcare workforce issues, if we, we raise those wages. But even as we raise those wages, it's going to take some time. You know, I want someone to get my granddad out of bed every morning in his nursing home. Uh, that person earns, you know, a relatively low wage. That wage, wage should increase. But even if we raise the wages by 25% tomorrow, it's going to take some time before the sort of workforce is there, particularly because the government at the same time is also increasing staffing levels and standards in aged care. And so I think they're very conscious of the need to uh, make sure that that doesn't lead to the closure of aged care homes. And migration is one of the ways to solve it. It's just really hard and really risky to have lots more, many more low-skilled migrants come to Australia because they're very high risk of being exploited unless we can solve those issues. And I think we also risk reinforcing gender the gender pay gap because these are predominantly female-dominated industries. And so if you're bringing migrants in, you are going to put a little bit of downward pressure on the people in those industries already. Turning now to permanent skilled migration, the government hasn't made immediate changes but has instead committed to do further work in this area. Why is there a delay here and what do you think those changes could look like? It's interesting that so much of the focus of Claire and your speech when she responded to the Parkinson Review at the Greta Press Club focused on those immediate announcements, so changes to the Tismet to 70,000, which I should point out, she she gave a shout-out in the speech to the gold, calling it the Goldilocks level of, as a wage threshold, which actually, actually comes from some work that Tyler did um, for an op-ed that we did um, last year, or sorry, earlier this year, and so, you know, shout out to Tyler for, for getting into the minister's speech. The really interesting question here is that permanent migration is so much more important. So there's a lot of focus on temporary migration that captures the airwaves, but the permanent visa system and how we design that is way more important in the long term, but it just gets so much less attention. And, you know, the, the events of the last week are a testament to that. So what the government is committed to do is to look at improving the way that we select skilled migrants through the various pathways. Uh, the reason they haven't gone quicker is, you know, to be honest, the Parkinson review only had like four or five months in order to actually try to reassess the entire visa system. I can speak from personal experience working on migration at Grattan. It takes longer than that to answer all of these questions. And so there's things that the government's committed to now. And there's things where the reviewers set out a reform direction that the government's going to then work towards over the next few months, noting as well that a big part of this is trying to bring the business community, the unions along with them. And so a lot of this is the result of negotiated outcomes. I bet there was a lot of closed door discussions about the TISMA before they landed on $70,000. So where they're looking to go, most importantly, they're going to look at uh, changing how points tested visas are offered. So the points test, you know, we've talked about before, you basically apply for a permanent skilled visa. The, the government assesses your your long-term potential contribution to Australia on the basis of how old you are, 
you know, what experience you have, what qualifications you have. And the idea is to pick people that are going to make the best long-term contribution to Australia. Now, the trouble is that at the moment, um, we have the points test is bloated. It includes things like professional year. You get extra points for studying in regional areas when, you know, I think it's pretty clear that studying in a regional area compared to studying at a, at a major university in the city is probably not a good predictor that you're going to earn more and contribute more to the community in the long term. And so what the government is planning to do is to recalibrate that points test. They're looking to give spouses greater weight because, you know, if I come to Australia with my partner, we're taking two spots in a limited number of permanent skilled visas available. You want to make sure that you, you should be doing more to account for the skills of the spouse. We obviously can't and shouldn't account for the skills of kids. You know, my six-year-old's not going to have a bachelor's degree, although, you know, he does seem pretty cluey. They're, they're looking to do that very detailed work over the course of the next few months to work out how the, the points tested visa should change. Because And if you do that well, the payoff is enormous. Like it'll be, the fiscal payoff alone will be tens of billions of dollars to Commonwealth and state budgets over the next three decades. And it will dwarf any potential changes or improvement in Australia's wellbeing from the temporary program. Brendan, one of the ones, you know, we love to talk about the podcast, the Business Innovation Investment Program. Do you expect future change on this? So the review pointed out that um, the program's not working very well. The government has said they want to consider that down the track as part of these um, uh, other changes they're looking to make to permanent skilled visas. We've gone on about this for a long time. The Business Investment Innovation Program doesn't work very well because it attracts older, less skilled migrants that, you know, um, don't earn anywhere near as much. And every visa you give through that program is a visa that you're not giving to a younger skilled worker who, you know, makes a much larger contribution to Australia in the long term. I expect a couple of things to come from here. One is we'll get the planning levels for the, for the permanent migration program for next financial year. Uh, in the budget, which will be on next Tuesday night. And so I expect that we'll see a further decline in the number of visas offered through that program and potentially also through the Global Talent Program. And then down the track, we hope to see the government abolish that program entirely, the Business Innovation Investment Program, because it's it's not contributing, it's not doing a great job for Australia. Uh, but that's one that the government's still got some, diff some difficult calls to make down the track. And we hope to see the, those announcements over the course of the next few months. Yeah, one of the particular challenging parts is that there's 30,000 people who've already applied for the program. And so they now have to make a choice about do they just not issue those visas or do they do they say, hey, we're putting a stop from here on? Tyler, I mean, the government has signalled that it wants to tackle the issue of a growing number of permanently temporary migrants here on temporary visas, especially by offering clearer pathways to permanent residency. How exactly will the government do that? Yes, I mean, it's a really, a really tricky question. They announced that they're going to give everyone on the short-term TSS visa a pathway to permanency. So what that means is that if you're on the medium-term TSS visa, so you work in certain occupations that are on the medium occupation list, medium-term occupation list, you were able to apply for employer-sponsored permanent visa after four years. That was never the case if you were on the short-term occupation list. So they've now opened that up to people on the short-term <laughs> occupation list. That doesn't actually solve the problem because at the moment there's only 1.9 million temporary migrants in Australia um, and there's only 195 permanent places. So just offering people a pathway to permanency doesn't guarantee that they're going to get it. And at the end of the day, the numbers don't stack up. We've seen a bit of signalling, you know, O'Neill's speech that, you know, 
not everyone who wants to say will be able to, which I think is the first step in making those really tough choices. But the government still has a bit of work to do in, in kind of really grappling with what that means. The review gave a little bit of guidance, um, talking about prioritizing, you know, if you're on a temporary visa and the points test potentially, or um, having separate pathways or, you know, facilitating transitions for students. But at the end of the day, it's just a mathematical question. If we have that many temporary migrants, we can't offer everyone a permanent visa. And so I think the really tough thing for government to do in the next couple of years is to say, we're not giving you false hope. If we don't think there's a pathway to permanency here, you can't stay. And that involves some really tough conversations to have with migrants who would like to stay. Um, and it's also not clear how to kind of make those calls. So still a little bit of work to be done. I'd also just add one last thing, which is they've also created a pathway to permanency for Kiwis. So in Australia, every Kiwi can come immediately um, and just they're granted a visa on, on arrival, but there's no pathway to permanency. You can't apply for PR if you're on the special category visa. Um, so giving that uh, pathway now means that we'll, we're, we're treating Kiwis the same way as Australians get treated when they move to New Zealand. But it's not clear how that fits into the planning caps or anything like that. So that, that will be one very simple thing that will kind of help the problem. The last thing I want to ask you about, I mean, the federal opposition has accused the government of running a big Australia agenda by stealth. And for those who don't recall, under Kevin Rudd's leadership, Labor previously committed to a big Australia policy to increase the population to 36 million by 2050. Is the government running a big Australia policy here? Thanks, Kat. I think this is going to be a big focus of the political debate in the next few months. And so it's probably worth just briefly explaining how migration adds to the population in Australia and sort of what's driving the, rec the record flows we're seeing recently. So at the moment, you know, what's driving this is that net overseas migration, which is a measure of how many people are long-term residents in Australia, uh, you've got to have been here for 12 out of the last 16 months. You know, this year where with the Treasury is forecasting that net overseas migration for the financial year we're currently in is going to total 400,000 people, which is the largest number on record. So uh, that's very big. Um, and it's historically more like 250,000. And it's going to be 315,000, 315,000 next financial year. So, so, so why do we have these record flows of migrants coming into the country or boost increase in the, in the population? Well, part of it, a large part of it is just the catch up from COVID. We closed the borders. And so many temporary migrants went home, including many students. And, the, and people who started studying their degrees with Australian universities did so remotely. Now, the borders reopened as, as we've managed to vaccinate the Australian community and COVID's less of a risk than it was. And so a lot of those students, working holiday makers, others are coming back to Australia. And that's what's driving the record flows. And at the same time, because we don't have many as many second and third year uni students that are coming close to the end of their degrees, fewer people are leaving. Um, and so, you know, normally we get this big increase in net overseas migration. We're getting it right now because of a very particular set of factors. Now, part of it as well is that decisions of the former government, such as extending work rights or uncapping work rights for international students, have also accelerated the pace of students coming to Australia. We saw record numbers of uh, students applying to come to Australia from places like Nepal, um, where, you know, there is a, an issue where um, with some countries, people come to Australia to study, but then they'll actually, they're really here to work. The opposition has accused the government 
of running a big Australia policy on the basis of the record numbers of these inflows. A large share of that is just naturally arising from the catch-up from COVID. The population will still be, you know, 600,000 smaller based on some, some estimates out uh, today than what it would have otherwise been uh, with COVID over the course of the next le- decade. So we've still got a smaller population in Australia because of COVID. It's just we're getting rapid catch-up of from where we were. The government, though, has done some things that will increase the resident population of Australia. You mentioned the pathways for Kiwis to stay permanently. That will increase Australia's resident population in the long term. They boosted the number of permanent visa holders from 160 to 195,000. That doesn't affect the population straight away because most permanent visas are issued to people already here. But in the long term, if that's continued, it will boost Australia's population. And the one that people aren't talking about that will have a fairly big impact is we've extended the period of those graduate visas. Uh, So when you finish your international studies uh, as an international student, you then can stay in Australia and work. And historically, you could work for, you know, two or three years, depending upon um, what you studied. Now it's sort of four, five, six years. And that's going to increase the number of people who are in Australia for longer. Although it's worth clarifying as well, you have to have studied a particular area that is deemed to be in shortage. Um, So it's not universally all students now get this extension. Yeah, that's a great point, Tyler. So as is always the case with migration, there are always caveats. And so the net effect of that is that the population potentially could end up being bigger. Now, the government is emphasising that by cutting, by raising the TISMA to 70,000, they will reduce the number of temporary visa holders that are here. So there's a number that's out ahead of the budget saying that the the government's um, decisions will reduce the number of low-paid migrants entering the country by up to 31,000 a year. So that, you know, that's an effect, but it's offset by these other decisions that have been made by governments from both sides of politics over the course of the last couple of years. So I think we're going to see a big debate about this going forward because it has huge, it has big implications for the rental market. Vacancy rates are at historic lows and migrants do add to demand for Australian housing. And in the short term, we can't easily build more. And the net of, they are adding to the fact that vacancy rates are low and rents are rising. That said, it's really hard to cut back parts of the migration program easily. A lot of this is just the flow of automatic decision, the the flow of migrants arising from the existing settings that haven't been policy changes. And so if you were going to try to cut back the numbers uh, in response to this, you know, are you going to put a higher bar on international students? The government said they're keen to do that in some way. So um, maybe shut down some poor quality providers of courses that international students are coming in. You could restrict the number of working holiday makers. The reality is we've just got a really tight uh, housing market for a couple of years because of the response to COVID. Migrants left, they've now come back. Australians are demanding more housing and that's what's leading to these concerns about a big Australia. Thank you so much, Brendan and Tyler. Migration is such a complicated issue, but as we've said previously on the podcast, if we get the settings right, it can have huge economic dividends for the country. Next week, we have a very exciting budget podcast. It's our annual event with Danielle Wood on the podcast discussing all things budget breakdown. So you don't want to miss that. Do hit subscribe on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube if you're watching this in video format. This migration research wouldn't be possible without the funding from the Scanlon Foundation, for which we're really grateful. If you do want to further support our work, support this podcast and our research, which is available for free online, please head to grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. As always, please do take care and thanks so much for listening.